Great to see everyone. Uh, glad you're here. As Mike was talking about that Black, uh, Black Swamp Arts Festival that's happening in Bowling Green in a few weeks, that's in the bulletin. Uh, again, that's for Pastor Eric. He's a guy who's actually been a, uh, with us during some of our staff meetings. He drives over and uh, we are connected in that way. And he's got a tiny church there in Bowling Green. And boy, they need some help. And if you could volunteer three or four of those hours in one of those slots over those three days. Uh, it'd be a huge encouragement to him that he'll probably have a t-shirt for you to put on representing their church. And so if you could do that, please consider doing that. Uh, also wanted to mention, we've been hearing a lot about Afghanistan, and I'd like to just stop right now in our service and uh, pray for the people there, if you'd join me. Father God, we, uh, first of all, we thank you uh, for the men and women uh, who have served our country in Afghanistan over the last 20 years and the good that they did there, the people that they helped in real time. And Lord, we thank you for them. And Father, right now, as we're uh, leaving there, we especially pray for the troops that are there trying to pull out. And Father, also the Christians that are in Afghanistan. Lord, that have had some measure of protection over the last two decades, and now uh, that military protection is leaving. And Father, we pray that you protect them. If they're trying to get out of the country, we pray that you'd help them to get out. And if they've decided to stay, we pray that you'd, uh, we ask uh, that you would protect them and uh, strengthen them while they're there. Father, uh, also our allies that have helped our military, Lord, that you'd help get them out. And Father, we, we appeal to you, Lord, to, to give them strength and to protect those, those three groups of people over there. Lord, thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We started a new series last week uh, called Redacted, and we're talking about truths that you don't hear anymore, truths that you can't say anymore. And last time we talked about gender and today, we're talking about sexuality. And, uh, and, and the reason, and I know some people are like, why are we even talking about this stuff? And it's, well, first of all, people shouldn't have to go outside the church to find information on God's design and God's plan for their life. And so we have to engage with our culture. We have to talk about some of these things, even if for to you, these are just kind of obvious. Well, it's not obvious to everybody, and we have to cover these issues. We shouldn't feel like you got to go outside the church to get answers like this. And so as we start, the question is, you know, what does the Bible say about sexuality? And, uh, and, and the first, we really need to preface that with that basically what the Bible says is we, we are sexual people, but God loves us. God created us in his image. He designed us as male and female. We talked a little bit about this last week, and God has assigned to us incredible worth. We're created in his image. He's given us free will, that he doesn't force us to follow him. He, he calls us, he invites us to follow him. And, uh, and we've all messed that up, and God loves us anyway, and I'll get back to that later. But here's the deal. God's love for us doesn't mean 
that he affirms every decision that we make, right? Just because God loves us, and he does, it doesn't mean that he accepts us in whatever we're doing. Sometimes God tells us what we're doing is wrong. And that can be sometimes offensive to people, but with God's word, all of us are told we're wrong in some area. All of us are offended by some part of scripture. And so as a leader, for example, I want to, as I said last time, love first, lead second, and that's sharing God's truth. And always do, that's right, always do both. Love first, lead second, but always do both. Now, Jesus, remember, was called a drunkard and a glutton because of some of the people he hung out with. And uh, the broken were drawn to Jesus in the first century, just like we were, just like I was broken and drawn to Jesus. And it's Jesus that said things like, hey, he came, the sick, you know, the healthy don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. Because Scripture tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we know Jesus interacted with a lot of people. Uh, We know that he called sin, sin, but he was passionate toward people. For example, uh, one time a woman was caught in adultery and she was dragged before Jesus and it was sort of a test to see if Jesus would strictly and sort of harshly apply the law. And then Jesus basically protected her, saved her from a fate of being stoned. But then what did he tell her? Go and sin no more. So Jesus loved the person, but did not affirm her lifestyle. And that's a great truth modeled for us. Jesus never compromised on truth. And so we as a church, we want to share truth with people. Never compromise. Because we want to help people. And we want to help them with truth. We want to help everyone. Help us with God's truth. And so the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. One of the places where it gets a little more detailed is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so I'd invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you or look it up on your device. Uh, If you're using a Bible in the chair racks, it's page 1144. And so here, Paul is writing to Corinth. And I want to set a little bit of context with you. This is first century, one of the earliest letters that are written by Jesus' followers. This is Paul writing to Corinth. Corinth is in what was Greece, and Greece is made up of two main land masses that are connected by a thin strip of land, and Corinth was right there in that thin strip. And the reason that was so key was because ships could actually land at that thin strip and just overland transport their goods five miles. That's not very... Not, not very far, and then dot, put it, re, re-put it onto another ship and go, and that would save them like 200 miles of sailing in dangerous waters for storms and stuff. So that was common, and that's what made uh, Corinth a huge city for Greece. Then Rome took over. They saw that it was a powerful city, so they just completely destroyed the city. And then about a hundred years later, they realized, wow, that was a handy city to have. So they rebuilt it. And so now in the first century, 
Corinth is a brand new city being rebuilt. New people are moving in and sin is rampant. They, they live some kind of wild lifestyles there. And so then he's writing this book to the church there. And in chapter six, he's telling them, he's confronting them on some issues. He first of all says, hey, you guys are taking each other to court. Believers taking other believers to court, suing them. That's not right. Don't do that. And then in verse 9, he shifts gears and he starts talking about the topic that we're discussing today. And here's what he says beginning in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So here He's talking about sins. He lists 10 sins, and there's a lot of different lists of sins when, when writers wrote like this, but here was 10, and four of them are sexual in nature, and that's what I want to kind of key in on, so we're not talking about everything here. We're actually selecting out just a few of these sins, but we want to remember that context, and, because, and the reason is, is e it's easy for us to read a list like this, and certain sins stand out as like, wow, that's really bad. And usually it's not the sins that we're struggling with. We, oh, yeah, we, we kind of downplay our sin and the sins that we're least familiar with, we look at those and go, wow, that's some bad stuff there. This other stuff is kind of more normal, you know. No, he's saying it's all sin. He's putting all in the same kind of category in a sense. So, but four of these 10 are sexual. Sin are not, six of them are not sexual. And the six not include you know, idolatry, greed, substance abuse, stuff like that. But catch this. It sounds like he's saying something that he's not, and, and you have to just understand more Scripture to get all this. He's not saying that if you've ever committed one of these sins, you're going to go to hell. But we'll get back to that. What I want to do is I want to look a, more, a little more closely at the four terms, the four sins that he names, so we understand what we're talking about in this area of sexuality. He says, fornicators. This is the Greek word pornea. This is where we get our word porn or pornography. Now, technically, this word is not really covering pornography, but God actually deals with sin like pornography. Jesus actually spoke to it in Matthew, in the sermon, in his greatest sermon, Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5.28. But this here, pornea or uh, fornicators, it's a, it's a broad term for sexuality, but it means sex with another person if it, and that other person is not your opposite sex wife, okay? So he's saying sex, any, any type of sexual relationship with a person outside of it being your wife, and that's, you know, God's plan of one man, one woman. So any sex outside of marriage, whether you're married or not. Adulterers, the next term, is a married person having sex outside their marriage. The third term is effeminate. 
sometimes some of these terms are collapsed, and some uh, versions of Scripture, they combine these into one. But, but actually, they're a little more specific, and the NASB, the version we're using, kind of pulls that out. So the next term is adulterers, I'm sorry, effeminate. And effeminate is homosexuality, but more specifically, it's the softer side of homosexuality, or more specifically, it's the, the passive role in homosexuality. I could be a lot more graphic, but I'll just kind of leave it at that. And then there's a, a fourth term is homosexuals, which is the more aggressive part of homo, the homosexual act. And so, you know, I, again, I could get into a lot more detail, but let's just leave it at that for now. So, Jesus boldly calls all these four sexual acts wrong or sin. God says these are always wrong. And basically, only two of these have to do with homosexuality, and two of these have to do primarily with heterosexuality. And uh, your, our sexual desires, by the way, wh- whether we're gay or straight, on their own, if we overemphasize our sexual desires, even if we're kind of trying to do them the right way, on their own, our sexual desires will always lead us outside of God's will. If we're not tempered by God's truth, if we're not trying to do it the way God designed this to be, because it's really sex is a gift. So today, as we know, that's why we're doing this series, there's this huge pressure, social pressure, to deny God's truth in this area of our life. It's huge. And if you think about it, it's so big of an issue in our culture today that entire denominations of the Christian faith have caved on this issue. Entire denominations have said, decided to call these things are not sin. Now, thankfully, those denominations are dying because they're not preaching God's truth, but that's happening all around us. And, uh, and that's wrong to do that, because God is specifically saying, hey, these things are wrong. God's the author of life. He tells us what's right and what's wrong. And uh, then a lot of people that deny it, like these denominations would say, well, you know, that was written in the first century, and, you know, this is the 21st century, and not, you know, they didn't really know everything that we know. They didn't realize that different people were wired up different ways, like we know that now. All that's wrong, by the way. All that is historically untrue. For example, in the first century, and this is Roman culture, because they had conquered Corinth about 100 years before, in, or, or more, in the first century, it was common for Roman men, especially Roman men with uh, status or power, it was common for Roman men to have physical relationships with their wives, but also their servants, whether male or female, and also other men. That was just a common thing. Nobody even questioned that. So that just happened. So in a lot of these areas, Corinth was way more off the reservation as far as God's will is concerned with sexuality than we are in our country today. And it's amazing that people say, well, they didn't really understand all this stuff. Oh, no, they knew exactly. That's why they have two different words, 
specifically describing the homosexual act because they knew all about this world and they were getting more specific than we do. And then what happens though when you talk about a text like this is people send, they tend to push back by forcing a question and it'll be something like this. Are you saying that you can't go to heaven if you're gay? Is that, is that what you're saying? And normally they won't say, is that what it's saying? They'll say, is that what you're saying? And, and here's the deal. God's telling us in passages like this that any unrepentant, sinful lifestyle that we embrace and tolerate and pursue is not the mark of a Christian. Any sinful lifestyle that characterizes us and sinful because God says it's wrong. If that's what we're all about, then chances are we are not a believer because that's not the mark of a believer. It's not what believers do. Not characteristic of somebody following Christ. And as we talk about this, I just want to throw out this reminder is there's a lot more heterosexual sin represented in this room than homosexual sin. Can we see that? And he's condemning both. So the question is, what's your lifestyle? He's saying, because there was a list of 10, in this particular list he's saying, is your life all about money to where you, you swindle people or you steal? Be concerned. Is your life you know, about greed? Be concerned, he's saying. Is your life about the party this weekend? You know, it's all about partying, partying. When's the next time you can party? Be concerned. Is your life about, you know, sex? I mean, is that the main thing that's motivating you? Is that what you're living for? Be concerned, he's saying. But then people keep pushing back to the question. No, I want to know, Kevin, can you be gay and be a Christian? Well, the question to that is, yes. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But if you're asking, can someone live an unrepentant lifestyle in any type of sin and be totally non-repentant about it? Can a Christian do that? No. No, Christians will be broken over their sin. Christians will be repentant over whatever sin is in their life. Because their lifestyle, they could tell, is not reflective of what Jesus wants. So, but if you're living a non-repentant, you know, you're, you're in some sort of sin, any type of sin, and you're just blatant about it, it's a lifestyle and you're non-repentant, that's not reflective of a believer. That's not reflective of somebody who says Jesus as their Lord, and Lord means our authority, our king. Some object this way. They'll say, well, you're just talking about what Paul said. Jesus never addressed homosexuality specifically that's recorded for us. Okay, well, Jesus never said don't sell drugs to kids, but that doesn't mean we don't do that. And we know that Jesus would say this. And how do we know that? Because Jesus always affirmed multiple times. Jesus clearly reaffirmed traditional values of marriage, one man and one woman for a lifetime. He says that. He quotes that from the Old Testament. 
Jesus taught faithfulness in marriage, and that marriage should be between one man and one woman. He also taught celibacy in singleness. He reaffirmed both of those things. So the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. The main question is, are we willing to submit? Are we willing to bend our lives to God's truth? Because that's what God's calling us to do. And God's offering us a new life to help us do that. For example, later in this chapter, in verse, um, well, the last verse we talked about, verse 11. Do you remember that? He said this. After listing all those ten sins, he said, such were some of you, the people he's writing to. But then he said, but you were washed. And that's God's forgiveness cleanses us from our sin. But you were sanctified. That means he has set us apart, special, to follow Christ. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That justified means we're declared righteous in Christ, even though we don't deserve it. He's saying, such were some of you. He's saying, hey, that was your identity, but that's not you anymore, he's saying. He's saying the sins of your past don't define you. That's over. Now we live to follow Christ. And so for all of us, it, it's kind of a, a challenge. What do we need to change in our lifestyle? Is there something characterizing our life that's out of step with God's Word? For example, just about any time here at Grace, we have couples attending that are living together but are not married. As Christians, you can't be comfortable with that. God's saying that's wrong. Or we have single people who sleep around or, you know, if that's your lifestyle, that's wrong. You cannot be comfortable with that as a believer. Here, here's what it says. Paul continues in this uh, chapter later in verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one, with, one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. This is really interesting. Because Paul's saying sexual sin affects us in a way like like other sins do not. Something special about that that affects us in a deep, deeper way, and it all has to do with this quote that he made that talked about one flesh. And he's quoting from the Old Testament, and basically this one flesh, he's saying, having a physical union with somebody is more than just having a physical union with somebody, is kind of what he's teaching here. It's God's invented way sex, God's invented way to give yourself to someone else so deeply 
that it results in connection beyond the physical. That's what God's teaching us. God says, it's like he's saying, don't have physical oneness without whole life oneness. Don't have physical oneness without lifelong commitment. That's what he's saying. And that's why sexuality matters. You see, any area of our life, when we twist it away from God's intention and God's plan, it's destructive to us and those we love. So, God's view of marriage and singleness. Both Jesus and Paul say that some choose not to be married. And they're both saying, that's okay, that, that's great. You can honor God with that decision. By, and you do that by remaining celibate. They're both teaching, Jesus and Paul, faithfulness in marriage, celibacy in singleness. And, and I'll give you an example how that played out because that was a lot more controversial then than it is now. In the first century, if a woman became a widow, it was expected by all these cultures that she would remarry. That was kind of her job. You need to get remarried. This was such an issue in Rome that Rome at certain times actually had laws that after a certain time period, if a widow did not get remarried, she was fined by the state. It's kind of crazy, right? But now it went in Christian communities, Christians, through the teaching of the Bible, said, no, that's not the way. Because the Bible's teaching us that we as a Christian community should support our widows. And so in the Christian community, when women became widows, they actually had a choice. Because the church stood behind them to support them so that they could choose whether they wanted to get remarried or not. So that, that would be a difference that's, that's in this culture. You see, amazingly, we have Jesus here teaching the highest view of marriage, that, that it's sacred, that it's God's plan, that you can't interrupt, it's wrong to interfere with that in any way. Highest view of marriage, and by the way, highest view of sexuality. You just don't do this with anyone. It's somebody you have whole life commitment to. So Jesus teaching the highest view of marriage and the highest view of sexuality goes on to teach us, hey, you could actually live a perfectly fulfilled life in Christ without either one of them. That's what, that's what Jesus is teaching us. All of God's boundaries are for our protection. God created the world. The problem is we reject God. He's given us free will so we can do this, but we reject God and then we run from God. I want to give you an example of that. This is from Romans 1, 18. Uh, here's what it says. For the, just listen, uh, just 10 verses here, 11 verses for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident with, to them. And then he explains how. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do these things which are not proper. And then he goes on and lists more sins. He's saying sins like homosexuality, what you're actually doing is you're just rebelling against God's design, God's created order, and most of all, God. And outside of God's boundaries, risk factors rise dramatically. And so that's what I want to talk a little bit about. And I got to tell you, scientific research in the area of sexuality is the most politicized research in the world. So you have to dig deep. You have to take a deep dive. And so a lot of people say, well, why, why would God, it doesn't make sense, why would God be opposed to homosexual behavior? Well, Here's the truth you can't say anymore. Well, because it's against God's design for humanity. That's what God is saying. God says it's wrong. Secondly, there are natural consequences of homosexual behavior. For example, I want to quote a, a news article about a research study, and this is from NBC News, okay? NBC News. Hang with me, all right? Here's what it says. The 2020 National Survey on LGBTQ Youth Mental Health, it's the name of it, by the Trevor Project, which is an LGBTQ youth crisis intervention and suicide prevention organization. So this is a, a, a huge survey, maybe the largest survey of its kind, and it's done by an LGBTQ organization. So this survey paints a stark picture of pervasive mental distress among America's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer youth, with a majority reporting symptoms consistent with generalized anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. The survey, the largest of its kind, polled 40,000 LGBTQ people between the ages of 13 and 24 and found 68% of the respondents, that's more than two-thirds, 
reported symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder. 55% reported symptoms of major depressive disorder. And 48% reported engaging in self-harm. In addition, 40% say they have seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. Okay, so that's America. Now, the European Journal of Epidemiology says basically the same thing, that the homosexual suicide rate is 300% higher than other groups. Now, we're trained as a culture that when we hear those groups, we push back and say, well, that's because of intolerance. That's be- and then a lot of times Christians are in the cross Well, that's because they're not treated fair. That's because of intolerance. It's our victim status. But that claim is not true. And here's how I can prove it. The truth you don't hear is that other historically oppressed minorities, for example, like blacks in America, have less than half the suicide rate as whites do in America. So I'm just throwing that out to say either there's no oppression among black people or oppression doesn't cause high suicide rates. So that's one thing. But here's the most revealing the truth you don't hear, is there was a study in Sweden. Now, I mention a study in Sweden because a country, this is a country that's named by the international LGBTQ community as the most tolerant country in the world, Sweden. For example, Sweden legalized same-sex relationships in 1944, the most tolerant country. For example, Sweden enacted a law in 2003 that made even talking negatively about sexual orientation was called hate speech. It was made hate speech and punishable by fines and jail, meaning what I'm saying today is illegal in Sweden to suggest that God's intent was one man for one woman for a lifetime. So this Swedish study showed that their gay community didn't have lower suicide rates than other countries, but higher suicide rates than other countries. Do you get what's being said here? The most tolerant country, who the LGBT community would say is the most tolerant country, they have tolerance, but that doesn't help their suicide rates. Their suicide rates are higher than they are in other countries like ours. Some of that may be because they don't allow the truth. Life expectancy among homosexuals. This is an astounding truth you don't hear. Check this out. The life expectancy among the homosexual community is like 20 to 24 years less than everyone else. 20 to 24 years shorter life. And I'll back that up. And again, I'm using some of these European studies because they're a lot more open, a lot more tolerant. Denmark, the average age of death for heterosexual men is 74 years old. In Denmark, average age of death for homosexual men, 
51 years old. That's 23 years shorter lifespan. In Norway, the lifespan, average lifespan of a heterosexual man is 77. The average lifespan of a homosexual man is 52. What's being said? That this lifestyle is dangerous. We talk about smoking being dangerous. 20 years off your life, and nobody talks about it. That's the problem. And this is why the church has to talk about it, because it would be unloving not to talk about it. And, And by the way, I know when I'm saying this, that there are maybe a few of you here and maybe more watching online, and you're hearing this talk, and you're looking at me, and you're thinking, you bigoted, hateful, homophobic nut. I can't believe you're even saying this, is what they're thinking. And and here's what I got to say to you if you're here or if you're listening. If you know a gay person in your life that's living a gay lifestyle and you would never share this truth with them, I'm telling you, I love them more than you do. We love the gay community more than you do because we love them so much, we will tell them the truth even though it's truth they may not want to hear because we care about them. And if you're in that community, we care about you. People object, well, gay marriage is just like heterosexual marriage. That's what our media and TV programs have been hammering to us. There's no difference. Homosexual marriage, no, heterosexual, homosexual, straight, gay, no difference in marriage. That is a complete lie in the areas that matter most. I mean, what is marriage? Marriage is a commitment to be one with another person and to not be with anybody else sexually. And and people say, well, heterosexuals are terrible at this. Yeah, that's right. But the gay community is way, way worse. Let me give you an example. A Swedish research couple who happened to be gay. Again, we're talking about the most tolerant country in the world. A Swedish research couple who happened to themselves be gay, and so they knew a lot of people in the gay community. They're researchers. They wanted to research monogamy, you know, being just with one person. They were unable to find a single couple they surveyed that was able to sustain a monogamous marriage. They couldn't find one in their survey that was able to pull that off. Some people would say, they would push back and object and say, well, homosexuality, that's a genetic predisposition or a biological predisposition. Well, Truth you don't hear, there is zero, no scientific evidence for that. None. But even if there were, was evidence for that, it would not matter. Notice, Paul is also condemning heterosexual sin. He's also condemning alcoholism. I mean, and you can argue whether there's a genetic predisposition for that. I mean, that's an argument that people are having. But the point is, it wouldn't matter He's calling us, we're all broken, we're broken in different ways. He's calling us to what is best for us. 
his standard, his intent. Our brokenness just manifests itself in different ways, in different people. We're all broken. But God's not the author of sin. God gives us the answer, the solution for sin. So how do we help people struggling in these areas? And, and this is key. There are actually a couple of Christian authors. They wrote a book called Unchristian. And they surveyed a bunch of non-believers on what their view of Christianity was. That did not go well, by the way. I mean, people had a lot to say. They didn't have a very high view of Christianity. I think this was done in California. I mean, it was uh, not a high view of Christianity, yeah, especially there. But anyway, you know, so, and so they listen. Yeah, they see, they have all these negative things about Christians they see. But here's what I want to point out. At the top of the list, the highest negative thing about Christians is that Christians were anti-homosexual. Now, I want you to notice something. They didn't say Christians were anti-homosexuality, which we are, because the Bible is. They said we're anti-homosexual. We're anti-gay people. That should not be true of Christians. You see the difference? Yeah, we're against homosexuality, just like we're against heterosexual sin. But we're not against gay people. They're just broken people like us. Maybe they have different issues. We all have different issues. But we're for people. We're just standing for truth against what God says is wrong. So when we're interacting with people from the gay community, some things we need to remember, you know, all those individuals, they have their own unique story. We can't just lump them in as a group. And, and we probably need to hear that story. And, and by the way, we don't expect non-Christians to have... Uh, the same beliefs or the same standards for behavior as Christians because they don't have that foundation. They don't believe that there's a God telling them what's best or what's right and what's wrong. They haven't got there yet. And we need to remind people also that when they feel unfulfilled, sex doesn't fix that because a lot of people think it does. And that never works, no matter how you're oriented. And, and a few other things. Perfect parenting never guarantees perfect kids. And by the way, there's no perfect parents, right? <laughs> Just remember that. And here's the thing. If someone confides to you that they're struggling with same-sex attraction, well, they're, they're trusting you. They're coming to engage with you, to to talk about this, to, to maybe get your perspective, to, to see what you think about it. They're, they're opening their life up to you. Understand that they're trusting you. Help them. But here's the deal. Here's probably the overall point. Don't point people to a different sexuality. Point people to Jesus and then let Jesus work that out in their life. I mean, if they're asking what's right or wrong, yeah, but the main thing they need is not to change their orientation. The main thing they need is a relationship with Christ. Push that. That's our main message. And then just the last thing here, if you're struggling, if you are struggling with sexuality or with same-sex attraction, I want you to know, 
And if you've been around here any amount of time, you know this. God loves you. God loves you. God created you. God wants a relationship with you. God doesn't just love you with words. He loves you with action. He allowed Jesus Christ as one and only son to sacrifice himself for you. And not just for you, for your sin, for all of our sins, for the worst part of us. Jesus died for us. And here's the deal. Sometimes people become Christians and God immediately takes away some of these lifestyle issues, some of these wrong sinful desires. It's like, boom, the next day they're not struggling like they were anymore. In all these areas, that sometimes happens. And sometimes that doesn't happen. They become Christians, but they realize I'm still struggling with the same issue I was struggling with before. Right, we get that. Paul struggled with sin and told us about it. But don't forget this. Sometimes after we become a believer and we're still struggling with sin, God uses that struggle to remind us of the gospel, this good news that Christ came to die for us because we're sinners. And it makes us, it drives us to him. It makes us cling to the gospel more strongly than ever. Keep turning to him. If you have questions about how to turn to him, when this service is over, we'd love to talk to you in room one. If you're how to become a Christian or I have questions about that or I have questions before that could ever happen, room one. If you're out there, if you're listening online, hey, you can contact us and we're gonna send you information to help you. But either way, God came for all of us. We all have issues and that's why Christ died for us. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for loving us. Even though we don't deserve it, none of us do because we're all broken. We all have issues. You love us anyway, and you proved it by sending your one and only son who would die to pay our sin debt, our sin penalty, so that we could be forgiven forever, washed, cleansed, justified, sanctified, if we had only turned to you in faith by trust, putting all our trust in Christ and Christ alone. God, help every person listening to do that today in Christ's name. Amen.